I love how God steps into the messiness of our life. We can look at our life and kind of reread our life in the light of faith and see God has been present. Even when I didn't see it, God was present. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Jennifer Ristine, a consecrated woman of Regnum Christi. We'll ask more about that and what that means. Thank you, Jennifer, for speaking with me today. Thank you, Steve. It's wonderful to be with you today. The occasion of my meeting you is because of a presentation I heard you give and a book that you've written called Mary Magdalene, Insights from Ancient Magdala the actual town of Mary Magdalene. I'd like to ask about that in a minute, but would you give us just a little bit about your faith background? Did you grow up in a believing home? I did. I actually am a cradle Catholic, baptized Catholic before I even knew it. My mother was really the spiritual strong head of the family. My father, he was actually a convert into Catholicism when he married my mother. We were just a Sunday Catholics for quite a while. When I was a teenager, my mom started getting more into her faith, praying, reading scripture, attending daily mass sometimes, and that actually made me a bit curious as I was actually in high school, a public high school, and most of my friends were Protestant. They would open the Bible at the lunch table and start sharing about scriptures, and they started asking me questions about sacred scriptures. I actually learned the Bible better thanks to them, thanks to these Protestant friends I had, but um, always also loved my Catholic faith and the liturgy and the long history and tradition that's there in the Catholic faith. So I did grow up in that, helping with religious education as a teenager and into college and eventually consecrating my life to God in what's called um, an apostolic movement in the Catholic Church. Were there particular things, once you began to pay more attention to faith, belief, scripture, what were the things that were most meaningful to you or made you feel the most connected to God? Two things in my own faith. Um, I would say the Word of God proclaimed in the gospel in our Mass, and also the presence of the Lord in our Holy Eucharist. Um, I've had a couple experiences where the Lord really spoke to me in those ways. I remember when I was probably only 15 years old, I walked out of church and the deacon pulled me aside and said, what was the gospel today? And I said, I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. And he said that parable, when Jesus speaks about the seed falling into the ground, and if we don't have fertile soil, it doesn't take root. And that's the word of God. And the devil likes to snatch the word of God out of our minds and our hearts so it won't take root and grow within us. And that really struck me. So I would be very attentive to every gospel reading after that. And You were his example right then. As you left, you'd already forgotten. Exactly, exactly. So that was a big lesson for me, and I thank God he, he did snatch me aside and, and ask that question. Also seeing the love for the Word of God in my friends, that's something that in our Catholic faith we're still coming to know, and there's a revival of this centrality of the Word of God as well as the Eucharist in our own faith. And the second experience was probably around the same time, maybe I was 16 or so. My parents went through a very difficult time in that period of my life, 
And I just felt like I needed to be closer to the the Lord. And so one day I went in search of him in the Eucharist and uh, just the, to be there in the church, uh, in the quiet space, speaking to God in a very personal and intimate way, sharing with him my concerns, asking, you know, what am I to do in this? I just felt like he was a friend and he was somebody I could trust in and turn to. Did you feel that you knew or that you were learning how to receive answers to prayer, to your concerns? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I really thought about that. I think it just it's something that just naturally happened. But definitely later in life, and even now, I recognize his voice. He is the good shepherd. He is the good shepherd who wants, who continues to speak to us. And so I do consciously and intentionally make time for him, um, at least an hour a day, if not more, of just using scripture very slowly, very quietly, kind of letting it sit in my heart and in my mind and listening to him, or sometimes just sharing with him my day's concerns, the people that I've met that I want to entrust to him, and throughout my day in life circumstances, just listening and trying to hear what he's asking of me, or sometimes even at the end of the day, just asking him, Lord, are you pleased with me today? Did I did I help share about you with other people as, as I should have? Did others come to grow closer to, to you because of me? Listening to his voice in the peace within my heart, sometimes coming in a, a soft consolation, sometimes you can't hear his voice and it just seems like this empty, quiet void, but making that act of faith and trust that he is present with me. In a service earlier today, I heard you mention one of the perhaps tests of Mother Teresa that we read about where in her life, there was a period where she felt separated from the Lord, still doing his work. Have you had times where you struggled a bit or thought, well, is this real? Do I need to rethink this? Definitely. And I think that's actually part of our faith journey as we do grow closer to the Lord, we will be tested. You know, gold is test like like silver tested in fire, like gold tested in fire. This was an experience I've had a, a few times in my life. I can think of two very particular moments. One I think was actually a blessing from God. I was studying philosophy, and philosophy is a very rational, heady kind of theme. And it's not that faith is contrary to reason. We believe faith and reason are like the two wings of the bird, as uh, Pope John Paul II has written. We need both to fly high. They're not contradictory, even though we don't always understand God with our reason. Anyways, I was praying one day, and it just was like this momentary split-second flash in my mind, God doesn't exist. And your life is ludicrous, absurd. What are you doing having given your life to God? You took vows of poverty, chastity, obedience. You say you're serving Him. What are you doing? Split second. And in that moment, I realized how powerful is the gift of faith. I just left it at that. In that moment, I just made an act of faith, and I said, thank you, Lord, for the gift of my faith. I felt like that was a temptation, perhaps, the devil was offering, or it was God simply just kind of giving me a a vision of what the gift of faith truly is. So that was one. And there have been other moments when just difficult moments and in prayer when I feel like, where are you, Lord? Now, here I am doing your work, and yet... 
I don't hear your voice. And in those moments, it's been a beautiful recommitment of my faith to the Lord in trust to say, here I am. I love to think of Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, on Holy Saturday, we call it, after the crucifixion. They had to wait until Easter morning to go and anoint the body of Jesus again. And what was that experience like? This kind of emptiness, maybe loneliness, confusion. I think we experience that in our own faith journey. We have moments of great consolation where it's like, yeah, I'm accompanying you, Jesus. This is great. Moments at the foot of the cross where we're just suffering. And moments of this quiet emptiness where it's like this pregnant <laughs> pregnant space before the resurrection. And that's where God asks us hope trust. I am with you. You will come to that moment of the resurrection. Because every time we read about the tomb before it was empty, we read it, we can't help it. We know the end of the story. But to picture them that Saturday you mentioned, just the despair that could have been there. And it's nice to read and admire those who've come through those things until we get to those things ourselves. Yes. And also to recognize What we find there in the life of Christ, what we find in in the Gospels, is not just this abstract story separate from ourselves. I believe we enter into the dynamic of the Paschal mystery. We enter into that in our prayer life, in our faith journey, and we will experience those moments of cross, those moments of resurrection, those moments of the empty tomb. I'd like to talk just a little bit about Regnum Christi. This kind of movement was new to me. I know about nuns and priests. Mm -hmm. But would you tell me a little bit about what that is just briefly and then how you felt called? The Regnum Christi movement is one among many, many movements in the Catholic Church. Around the 1940s through probably the 1970s, it seems the Holy Spirit just was really blowing, uh, blowing the wind and several smaller Catholic communities started sprouting up, we'd say. All of them living the Catholic faith, but perhaps focusing on different elements of the gospel. And so, Regnum Christi is just one among many. We're a spiritual family made of priests, of married men and women, and what are called consecrated men and women, sharing a similar spirituality, a desire to be disciples in the world, especially in the secular world, finding ways to bring gospel values into this world, being leaven in the dough, we could say. And I came across it in when I was about 24 years old. I was living in Seattle. I was looking for a faith community within the Catholic faith, other like-minded people to share my faith with, to help me grow spiritually. And I had looked into being a nun, I also had boyfriends, you know, and I thought, maybe I'll get married and have children. It's the normal course of life, and it is the normal path or vocation for most people. But God has called through history those to kind of single out to be more fully dedicated to Him outside of the vocation of marriage. And I thought it would be as a sister, as a nun. I looked into that. Missionaries of Charity, the Franciscans, love these orders, but didn't feel the click didn't feel a call. These are the mysteries of God's ways. But when I met Regnum Christi, a consecrated woman, it's called a lay consecration. So we are partially in the world, partially not. It's kind of like straddling the border, you could say. I knew. I just knew. That's what God was asking of me. 
And so that's the path that I followed for the last 21 years. And at some point, you received an assignment to go to Magdala. But I would like to ask, before we we talk about your experiences there, Mary Magdalene, was she a spiritual figure of importance? Obviously, you knew about her, but importance to you even before going there. She actually was. So I almost feel like the invitation came from her. But, um, of course, the invitation comes from the Lord. Her and I go back in my own Catholic faith, You know, in the Catholic Church, we understand the communion of saints, how we're all walking towards this embrace with the Lord, with God, and those that have passed on before us who have died can have this influence on our lives as well. They are already in the embrace of the Lord. But I never had this strong devotion, as we call it, to any particular saint. For me, my eyes were on the Lord, and they're still there. But over the course of time, I started recognizing different people that could be these friends, these lights, these little lights for me. Their life testimony became this beacon of hope for me. And Mary Magdalene became one of those. My mom passed away in, the, in 2006 when I was 10 years into my consecrated life. And for me, she was the experience of unconditional love. When she passed away, I had a hole in my heart. I just felt like at a loss. And I recognized I started to fill that hole kind of with idols. Nothing completely illicit, you know, but at the same time, Jesus wasn't in the center. You know, I want I want to fill my heart with the affections of other people because I feel this loss of affection for my mother. I want to fill my heart with the comforts of the world, because that's a security I can hold on to in this time I feel my foundation is, you know, shaking out from under me. So, when I started recognizing that, I also recognized passages of Scripture jumping out at me, all related to who I thought was Mary Magdalene. Later, I discovered some of these passages, like the woman who anoints Jesus' feet. They're debated whether they're Mary Magdalene or not, but For me, Mary Magdalene was represented in these passages, and I saw her as someone who experienced from Jesus the unconditional love. She's the one from whom seven demons were expelled. She was in need of help. She felt broken. She felt lost. Jesus stepped into her life and redeemed her, made her a new woman. That experience of the pure and unconditional love, I imagine she experienced from Jesus, and I began to experience that too. But I also asked the Lord, give me a heart like Mary Magdalene's that's pure, that's passionate, because she was the one that, you know, she was right there at the foot of the cross, despite many others fleeing. She was there at the empty tomb. She was there when you sent her out to proclaim that you were risen. I want to be like her. And I would pray this every day, this petition, while from 2006 to 2014, I had that prayer in my mind to have this heart like Mary Magdalene's that loved the Lord passionately and purely. I got a call from my superior. We, we live obedience, which is a way of being completely available to any mission, any place will be sent. And my superior said, we've got this new place opening up and uh, it's called Magdala. It's in the Holy Land. Well, that was a time when bombs were being sent into Israel from Gaza Strip and Lebanon. So, my knees were shaking and I was a bit afraid, but at the same time when I turned to prayer, I felt a great peace. I felt an open door, like God saying, take my hand, 
trust me in this. And so I said, okay, send me, send me. And that began a new story of discovering this great figure of Mary Magdalene in ancient Magdala itself. The presentation I heard you give yesterday, which was so enjoyable, you had an archaeological section, then there was a break, then you talked about her in the scriptures, and then traditions. So much knowledge, there's no way I can ask you to please condense that into a few minutes. But this is a site, it is the very site where we know now there was a synagogue, there was civilization, there were fishermen, all of this. What are the things that you learned about or take strength from or inspiration from that you learned there during those four years? Because you ended up writing a book about it. One, I learned that Jesus Christ is pursuing each of us. I saw so many people come through Magdala, and no matter their faith background or no faith background, there were several people that would have this experience of peace when they went to Magdala. And you can only explain that as the Spirit of God present. I love to see all these different faith backgrounds praying, praying in our chapels. We have a beautiful chapel in the lower level that actually uses the stones of the archaeology, and it almost looks, has this feel almost of the synagogue. So you go from the first century ancient synagogue existing in the time of Jesus where he was likely praying, well, he was likely preaching, healing, passing through, and then you can walk down to this worship center that has the same feel, and you can worship the Lord there. Many people would ask for healings there, would pray for other people. So I just loved that this site would bring people to the Lord and to open their hearts to Him. Secondly, I learned the value of a saint. The saints are these beacons, as I mentioned earlier, these lights in the world. I think many of us outside of the Catholic world feel like, well, why do they worship saints? And we're using the wrong terminology. We don't understand. Yes. So, it is a different doctrine from other Christian faiths. So, we don't understand it as a worship. It's a request. Like, I'm asking you, would you please pray for my mother right now? Would you please pray for me? I'm asking that of a saint. So, we understand there's a subordinate role of mediation. Christ is the one unique mediator, but in the communion of saints, those that are with us here on earth and those who have passed on to the other side, who we'll be reunited with someday, please God, they also can continue that intercession for us. So, the value of a saint is tremendous there. Many people, even non-believers, I saw looking to Mary Magdalene as a sign of hope, this icon of hope. Somebody who was broken, who experienced the dignity, her dignity, because Jesus would have looked at her with this pure gaze rather than her being an object of somebody else's pleasure, for example. And she was able to come out of that brokenness and become a woman who was called the apostle to the apostles by the third century. Hippolytus of Rome is saying she was the one who shared with those apostles that Jesus had risen. So, what, what a beautiful role this woman played. And she becomes also this icon for other women of what it means to share the faith with others, the, the, the influence that we can have in others' life. Usually we think of her just in one or two passages, but the fact that she and other women are mentioned of caring 
for Jesus in his ministry out of their own means. They actually were maybe an exception to women in the time and in the place to have their own means and be that independent. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I, I think she was, and many look to her for that example of somebody kind of breaking away from the norms of culture. We don't always have to do that. But in a society that didn't look at woman's witness very favorably, she was this witness to the resurrection. The greatest event in salvation history, the evangelists say it's a woman. She's not the only woman, but in John's gospel, she's the one woman who saw Jesus resurrected. And then they said they didn't even believe her. So if you're trying to prove the resurrection, you know, make something up and prove the resurrection, you would not put a woman there and you would not even admit that you didn't believe her in the first place. So it's a great it's a great testimony, I think, <laughs> these women. But also, yes, they they accompanied Jesus throughout Galilee and they were privy to his teachings. I love the end of the Gospel of Luke when the angel appears to these women near the empty tomb. And reminds them, don't you remember what Jesus told you when you were with him in Galilee? The Son of Man would suffer, he would die, he would be crucified, and he would rise on the third day. Jesus had prophesied about his own crucifixion and resurrection, and the women, these little band of women among these other male disciples were right there listening to these very special prophetic words. A typical question I might ask is how you live your life differently because of your faith. I think that's been already adequately answered okay. <laughs> in what we've spoken of. What are the continuing evidences? What confirms your faith from day to day? Many things confirm my faith. One of them, I think they're more internal experiences of the Lord. Joy. You know, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, when you experience, even in the midst of suffering, turning your interior eyes to the Lord and just being with Him and experiencing a deep joy. Also courage in moments where fear can creep in and, oh, I have to speak in front of a lot of people or, oh, I have to go to that meeting and I just don't want to go. You know, normal daily situations that I encounter in my particular uh, role and mission and turning to the Lord again and, and praying, experiencing this internal courage or fortitude that I realize this has not come from me. This is from the Lord. And the excitement of getting to know Him more intimately and more deeply. This is always a confirmation. I'm not saying it's always easy. Uh, I have my, my own challenges, you know, fears that creep in and challenges in work, in relationships, all of that's there. But I love how God, I think Mary Magdalene taught me this, I love how God steps into the messiness of our life and we can look at our life and kind of reread our life in the light of faith and see God has been present. Even when I didn't see it, God was present. So I think that's important in our own life. Go back in our memory the memory of salvation history that's ours all through Scripture, that's part of who we are, the people called by God, all of us, and we remember God's loving care for us. And then in our own life cir circumstances, how we've experienced His loving presence. In the four years you were there in Magdala, the last year I understand you took time to actually write this book because so many people were asking questions. Were you surprised how many people had all of these burning questions. 
Yes and no. I was surprised more at the contradictory ideas people had about Mary Magdalene. From, is she Jesus' wife? Is she the adulterous woman? Is she the woman who anointed Jesus' feet? Is she or is she not Mary Bethany? And should we be listening to the Da Vinci Code? Exactly, yeah. Should we be reading the Gnostic Gospels? Um, And even, how about those seven demons, you know, or people telling me, I want you to give us a tour, I want you to speak about Mary Magdalene. We love Mary Magdalene, but please don't speak about those seven demons, because we don't believe that she was really possessed. So that led to a lot of questioning myself and digging for answers, seeing what many different scholars said. And then, sorry, I was the uh, media spokesperson for Magdala, so I would share a lot about the archaeology, the history, culture, this uh, crossroad of Jewish and Christian faith, and about Mary Magdalene. But oftentimes the media would focus on whether or not she was a prostitute, had she been defamed by Pope Gregory the Great in the 6th century when he spoke his homily 33. And I felt that while those were good and valid questions, and interesting answers in that that I do have in my book, we were losing the essence of the message that Mary Magdalene speaks to us today. She still is in many ways a disciple. She's pointing the way to Jesus by this testimony of her life. This is the message that I wanted to come out more and more through the book, that she experienced, like we all do, the need for unconditional love, She was somebody who was set free of bondage. We all have these moments in our life when we experience some chains, some idols that creep in, and we all can have this experience of deeper interior freedom and being set free by encountering the unconditional love and mercy of our Lord. So that was why I wrote the book, to offer both the Jewish tour guides, an explanation of our archaeology, the Christian pilgrims who come in, this kind of wide panorama vision of who this woman possibly might have been, what might she have been like if we look at these various scripture passages, these various things that the scholars say, various traditions and writings about her. So it's it's not an extremely in-depth in all these areas, but it definitely gives you like a mosaic picture of who this woman could have been. You mentioned that in your apostolic order that you live under obedience. Do you know what's next? I do not because uh, we live also by God's providence. So at present, I'm in Washington, D.C., helping in the RC Spirituality Center, which is an online resource center offering retreat guides for Catholics, for Christians, anybody who wants to plug in. Different books are on there, my book's on there. So faith resources and resources for spiritual growth. We usually get our assignments for three years. I was actually in Magdala for four years. That one extra year was a gift from God. I really felt like he was asking me, stay one more year. And I told that to my superiors, and they gave me an assignment for a a fourth year. But now I have a three-year assignment in Washington, D.C., and looking forward to how I can contribute to others' faith life, and they're getting to know who Jesus is in their own life in that way. A member of Regnum Christi, consecrated woman of Regnum Christi, Jennifer Ristine, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you, Steve, for asking. God bless you. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest from Regnum Christi, author Jennifer Ristine. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. 
this is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Do you have a particular figure in holy writings who you learn from or relate to in some way? What have you learned from that person or the events of their faith journey? And is it in the reading, the thinking, the writing, or the doing that you feel closest to God? We invited a group of people to listen to our guests and then respond. Sam Payne is a storyteller, songwriter, and arts educator who has shared stories and songs on stages from Bulgaria to Tokyo. Juliana Borio Goetz is a professor emeritus of chemistry at BYU who retired to become a full-time lay minister at her Catholic parish. She's married to Steve Goetz, an LDS high priest, and the mother of two grown children. Rod Gustafson is a husband and the father of four. He works in media, watches too many movies, and loves baking. His wife, Donna Gustafson, loves to have deep conversations with her husband and children around the dinner table. She's worked with her husband, Rod, for many years, reviewing movies for families. I really resonated with her description of the beginnings of her faith. I learned the term cradle Catholic when I came to Utah. <laughs> uh, I had never heard that expression before, but it is what, in fact, I am. I was born and baptized within a few days of my birth and went through Catholic schools all the way up. Unlike Jennifer, my grandmother was my strongest force in my faith. My mom was ill for a good part of my early life, and I spent time with my grandmother. And so I connect with a maternal figure that is there. But I also resonated with her stories in her teenage years of learning through her experiences with her Protestant friends. I am a much better Catholic, having lived in Utah for 30-some years and having taught at BYU, because I learn by compare and contrast. And when Mormons would say, well, this is, you know, we believe this, and I go, hmm, do I believe that? And such as, for example, that God has a body. So, you know, Catholicism talks about incarnation, and those comparing and contrasting were really very helpful for me in understanding what I believed, why I believed, and really growing in my faith. I think that's so true when you deal with people with, that come from different faith backgrounds. It is really enriching in our lives. Mm-hmm. It helps us think about questions that perhaps we've never thought about before. I mean, I also have the benefit of being raised in a faith that my parents converted to, and I really appreciate the fact when I talk with other people that I do comparing and contrasting as mm-hmm. well. It also just opens me up to a world of questions that I may never have otherwise asked. And I feel like I'm a better person and a better believer because of going through that process. And we see that in her life, too, as she takes this, you know, becoming a consecrated woman is a, is a phrase that I wasn't familiar with before listening to her explanation of that. In my own life, I like to feel like I have consecrated, not to the extent perhaps that she has, but I have that same desire that she has to, to find more about God and to conform my life more to the way that he wants me to live. And it can really resonate, that resonates with me. I can really identify with that. And as we have these experiences with people of other faiths and we talk about these things, it builds that faith in us. It makes us deeper and stronger and more committed, I believe. You know, Julie, as you talk about being a better Catholic after living among Mormons, right, for for, for so long— I think about really the many opportunities I've had to sit in on or participate in the ritual of people from other faith traditions, right? My family is religiously diverse, and I find myself sometimes in a, in a church-going situation that's not my own. And I find myself really kind of blown apart by the, 
by the beauty and the significance and the meaning of the ritual of some of the places where I go, some of the congregations that I get to sit in. And certainly there are things about my own sacraments that I that I know better than people who might visit. But at the same time, I think that there may even be some things that I'm able to observe about the sacraments of other people that they don't observe, you know, in being there for the first for the first time, being there as as a as a newcomer. And that's always been really, really meaningful to me, going to my grandparents' Lutheran church, for example, and really just being freshly exposed to all of this stuff that, that I think about then for years and years and years. What I'm really appreciate in what she was speaking as we talk about the advantages of being exposed to multiple faiths. The thing I love is how there's always seeds of truth in so many of them. And and quite literally, the seed, her speaking about that Sunday when she came out of church and she was questioned, what did you learn today? And I'm always fearful of that question because I will sit in church and I feel like I'm very engaged in what's going on. And a half an hour afterwards, what did I learn? And I need to work harder on remembering that. And as she talked about her experience, and even now she still remembers, it was the the parable of the seed, that by being questioned that one day, how that helped her to remember. And I really appreciated that because the great benefit of faith and especially weekly attendance at, at church I think we so often, we miss those benefits because I love the way that that the priest or whoever it was that spoke with her that day said, the devil likes to pluck the seed. <laughs> I thought that was just really beautifully descriptive of what happens. And it does make you wonder, okay, so how fertile is my soil? You know, mm-hmm, I come yes. here often, I sit here often. Is anything growing? I'm one of those rocky places, obviously, <laughs> yes. Well, and, and most of us are at some point in our life, and yes. that's the connection with Mother Teresa that she makes, mm-hmm. is that we have fertile periods in our lives and we have rocky periods, and the challenge is, as Mary Magdalene stayed put at the cross, you know, as, as her world was falling apart, this person with whom she'd had this per- wonderful personal encounter and whom she'd put her trust in, some of her money, if we, you know, as we understand it. And there he is, dying a criminal's death and the end of her world. And yet she came on Sunday to tend to the body. I really liked where she went with that imagery. That was beautiful as she talked about our different life journeys, our different faith journeys, and how we have those moments, you know, where we are sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him speak, and we feel that connection. And other times when we're at the foot of the cross and we feel like all is lost. And then also just talking about what that those three days of, of dark and despair, when everything that you had invested in seems to be destroyed, and you feel like there's nothing there, and yet still the faith to go to preserve the body, and then the joy and the understanding that that faith was not misplaced, that all of those miracles were there. And we do. We go through experiences like that in our lives where our faith is tested. But I really love the way that she came back to to Christ's life and that journey to use those to describe those feelings that we have as we go through those experiences. I had this really potent kind of flash memory when she was talking about what she called that pregnant 
moment, that moment yes. of great, of, of real emptiness and uncertainty and difficulty. And, and there was such a moment in my life when I was filled with a kind of emptiness, right? I didn't feel like I could get God to respond to me. And I, I just, there was this real difficulty and emptiness. And this is going to sound trivial almost, but I, I went by myself to see the film Prince Caspian. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I would not for a moment defend that film as a, as a great film, right? But I sat by myself watching that movie in the theater, and that's a film about the Pevensey children not encountering – Aslan doesn't come, you know? Aslan the lion doesn't come until the end, you know? And, they, and they, they are sort of forced to go through this adventure without him. And, of course, at the end, he – it's not so much of a spoiler to say that he does show up, right? But I found myself just completely arrested in that moment by this presence of, of God saying, I'm not always a parent. Yeah. You know, I'm not always a parent. And that, that notion, that, that sort of what I consider a great gift of faith to me got me th- – it's, it's, it, it's almost silly to say that seeing mm-hmm. the film Prince Caspian got me through that period of really great – emptiness you know mm-hmm. but it but it did i think cs lewis would be happy to hear you say yes. that because he did write that series as an allegory of christ so Certainly, yes. so i don't think he'd be disappointed that you you got that message out of it i will defend cs <laughs> lewis's work the filmmaker's work that i will defend right <laughs> well if i could follow up on the one point that god is not always apparent yeah. in our lives i have found that sometimes the harder I look for God, the further away he seems. Mm. And, you know, there's a principle in astronomy is that if you want to see a, a dim star, you don't look right at the star. You look off to the side of it. And that has been my experience. Sometimes it's when I look f- for God in indirect ways is then there's this star that streaks across the sky uh, <laughs> or some way in which I know that he is really there. Julie, that's beautiful. I love that. I really appreciated Jennifer's candor when she, you know, when she questioned when, you know, as to is this real and yet she struggles and does she ever struggle? And immediately she says, definitely. I really appreciate people. I think that's, that's important for all of us to remember for some reason when I'm in one of those moments of is this real? And you approach somebody and they give you the, well, of course it's real. For some reason, for me, it just helps build my faith more to find out I'm not the only person. The questions that where you get that, that we all have those moments where, yeah, definitely, this is, a, you know, that you struggle with this at times. Well, in fact, Catholic teaching would suggest that that's how a faith matures, mm-hmm. is that it's it in those moments of darkness that you come back and then you come back to it, that you're a deeper, a person more connected to God. Totally agree. And each time, yes, it, it builds that strength. It really does. I went through a bit of a crisis of faith just a little over a year ago where I was dealing with trying to do things and expecting certain outcomes from the behavior that I was following. And those outcomes weren't, weren't coming. And I reached a point where I wondered, if is God there? Have I misplaced? And it wasn't so much I wondered if God was there, but I just wondered if I had misheard, if the things that I thought he was asking me to do were not really what he was asking me to do. And I suddenly had this lack of faith in myself when I wasn't able to see that my efforts were were creating the results that I expected. And at that point, I had a, a very prayerful conversation with, with someone who could, who could talk to me 
in a religious sense and could talk to me about these things and gave me some counsel. And amongst the counsel that I was given was the admonition to spend more time in my scriptures, to spend more time looking for God there rather than looking for God in, if I do A, B, and C, then you will give me D. So I did that, and it didn't change for a long time. It was well over a year as I was doing this, but bit by bit, I started to realize that many of the things that I just could not see my way through were beginning to move. They were beginning to change. I was beginning to see a path through them, and I started to recognize that God had been there all along, that it was just one of those moments where you needed to walk by faith. And as I dug deeper into those words of God, they helped me to start to recognize and to see. And circumstances changed, and many of the things that I thought would never happen actually did. And, and God did come through with his promises, not the way I expected them, but he was, he was there. I really appreciated that. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Jennifer Ristine from Regnum Christi. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. When she talks about, you know, being a person that, that has taken a vow of obedience, she'll go where she sent, she'll do what she sent. And she talked about building a deeper love of the Word of God. I can really relate to that because as we try to be obedient and as we try to increase our love of the Word of God, I think we really do begin to see then God's greater design in our lives that is clouded to our view when we're just in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that is the quote I loved. I couldn't write it fast enough, but God steps into the mess of life. And then when you go back in our memory, we can see what God has accomplished. I really appreciated that perspective. I had a real potent memory when she said that. She, she talked about how God steps into the messiness, and it's somehow only in retrospect, right? We look back and we, we see that he was there. You know, mm-hmm. I have over the last little while been thinking a lot about my mother. I have always described myself as having a pretty good childhood, you know, even an idyllic childhood in some ways. But I've been filled with memories over the last little while of my mother introducing me as a tiny little child to great pieces of music. I've been remembering these pieces of music and seeking some of these pieces of music out and and finding strength and solace and inspiration in some of these things that my mother introduced to me very, very long ago. These memories haven't traveled with me. It's only looking back and seeing beauty in the care that my mother took for me that now as a you know as a 47 year old man I'm looking back and seeing some of those things that I didn't see at the time and I watched her I'm seeing her now the way that she fended off so many of the demons of the world you know by filling me with beauty that would come back later in my life to save me Rod I connected with that quote too especially in the context of, of how modern Christianity is looking at Mary Magdalene now. And as she mentions, there's this controversy and, you know, these all these different perspectives. And I think she really hits on the way in which Mary Magdalene serves well for us in the 21st century. She had a messy life, whether you thought she was a prostitute, whether you <laughs> thought she, you know, whatever the issues were, her seven demons, whether they were real possessions, whether they have schizophrenia or, you know, some right. mental mental problem. But the reality is we're all broken. We all we're have all a, messy. Yeah. We all have a messy <laughs> and life. And it was yes. that encounter, that face-to-face encounter, and then her 
decision to allow herself to be transformed that gave rise um, to the rest of it. But I also have an experience of living that. My family's always taken vacations on the beach. And for years and years and years, I would walk the beach every morning looking for the perfect shell, the <laughs> perfect stone. Several years ago, there were some family issues going on. And I was thinking about them in the terms of our brokenness. And I walked the, sh- the beaches that morning, those mornings, looking not for the perfect shell, but looking for the, b- the beauty in the broken shells. And that really gave me a, a way of going back to my family in the morning at the beach house and, you know, dealing with some of the, the tension that was there. And so I really like that image of Jesus coming into our messiness. That notion of, I thought of Magdala it, itself. Magdala itself, the excavation of the site is, it's this lovely place. And frankly, taken care of by lovely people. It's a, it's a very lovely place to visit. But it's it's not set apart, you know. It's not, it's not in a tranquil place. There's a hotel being built like on top of the excavation. I mean, it's, it's right there. And there's, you know, food establishments. And I mean, it, it's in the heart of a lot of, commotion. And and the experience that I had when I visited Magdala myself was this realization that the space around the place that you want to guard in your life with quiet, with peace, you know, doesn't clear itself away. It's not like the world builds a tranquil field where you can build your temple. You have to elbow stuff aside to make the space for yourself that that she talks about that she talks about I loved hearing her talk about caring for her relationship with God by creating quiet time quiet yeah. space you know in a former life I was a high school principal and I was one time sort of shepherding a group of theater students in New York City on a visit to Broadway I had never been there before and I had a friend here say, go find Alexander Hamilton's grave. You'll be glad that, that you went. Now, this was long before Alexander Hamilton was a Broadway star, right? And it betrays a real ignorance of history and geography for, for me to say that I had no idea where Trinity Church was. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of, just in the duties, the pressing duties of the high school principal shepherding these kids, it was kind of, you know, I thought, I, I hope I get to find this place, you know? And finally, on our last day in New York, we were visiting the 9-11 monument, and there it was. I saw it. It was right there, you know, the church that survived 9-11. And I excused myself from the group. There were other adults present, right? But I excused myself from the group just long enough to run over there. Trinity Church itself was a place that was kind of bustling with activity, you know. And I was so harried and so concerned with cares that had so beset me as I had been with these high school kids in New York that I was completely taken by surprise when I walked into just a little side chapel and it was empty and I sat down for just a moment and had for myself just a tiny little moment of quiet in a week that had just been filled with New York. I had a, a moment of, of great depth, of great potency that I, that I think about all the time that, that has come with me since then, the importance of finding that tiny little space elbowing the world aside, even though the world comes right into the very edges of that space. But guarding that moment has has become something that I look back on all the time. 
And that's where I think sometimes the gift of a consecrated lay, lay men and women is the gift of allowing you to build into your day an hour for prayer. Now, I'm, that, that's just her scripture prayer. I'm sure she goes to Mass every day. But her assignments are geared in a way that encourage her to do that. Her community life provides for that kind of experience. And so as a mom or a dad of lots and lots of kids and family responsibilities, it's, it can be very difficult to find that hour or that 20 minutes or, you know, to break away. So the question of taking Mary Mary Magdalene on as an icon and praying for the pure heart, the courageous heart, the willingness to walk with Jesus— that's something that speaks to me, just the whole idea of Mary Magdalene as an icon. Uh, in Catholicism, we venerate the Mother of God, Mary the Mother of God, and you know, put her up as the highest uh, of humanity. Some of us have a little difficult time. You know, we're not perfect, and we, we don't relate as easily to her. But Mary Magdalene is a person that we can relate to, a person who is broken, a person who's fallen, and yet receives that interaction with the Lord that allows her to change her life. And Mary Magdalene is the, the patroness for the Diocese of Salt Lake City. And the Cathedral of the Madeline is, of course, named after after Mary Magdalene. And so I've developed that kind of same vocation, same attraction to Mary Magdalene for that reason. She's She's courageous. She did things that were out of the norm for women of of her day. She followed the Lord, but she probably also stepped on a few toes in the process. And yet we still consider her a saint. The Lord chose her as the person to receive the news of his resurrection. So I think that's a, a really important perspective that Jennifer brings to this. You know, don't worry about whether she was a prostitute or whether she was this. She was broken. The Lord changed her and she changed her life. This notion of finding this kind of connection to Mary Magdalene and then being called to, to serve in, in Magdala. I lived in southern Utah for a long time. And upon moving to southern Utah, I started to become acquainted with the stories of southern Utah, right? Stories that I had not been very well acquainted with before. And, of course, one of the stories of southern Utah is the story of the Mountain Meadows Massacre, this really horrible event in the 1850s. 120 immigrants bound for California killed in cold blood by my people. <laughs> that was a very, very difficult thing for me to reconcile myself to. And, and it lived in my head and in my heart in kind of a difficult place. Lo and behold, some years after moving to Southern Utah, I was called as one of several to go and prepare the site of Mountain Meadows for a new monument that was to be erected. And so I spent time there and had experiences there that helped me. Certainly, it's still difficult to reconcile myself to what happened there, but to make my own peace with my people, you know, make my own peace with that story. I'm a songwriter, so I went out writing a song about the experience that I had there. And that, and that song wound up kind of filtering itself to the people who are the families of the people who were killed there. And so I have this kind of roundabout, sort of odd connection with those people too, which is kind of precious to me. But this story that had lived in such a difficult place in my heart wound up having a manifestation in in work that I was then called to do. I believe that I see the hand of the Lord in that. Yeah, isn't it interesting how if we are following the Lord, we will be drawn to where we need to be. And in Jennifer's case, she was drawn to Mary Magdalene, to Magdala, 
if I'm pronouncing that correctly, I hope, in your case to being able to contribute in some small way to the Mountain Meadows situation. And I think it's it's really amazing. One of the amazing parts of faith is just recognizing how, if we follow, we will be taken to the places or the people where we need to be. I think Jennifer's story is just full of that example. It really, really is. I appreciate how Jennifer finds beacons of light in the lives of people that have lived before. And in these stories that are told in Mary Magdalene, specifically that is for her. But I found that true to, in my own life as I read the stories about these people that are recorded in the scriptures, that I can step into those stories. Like she said, it's, you know, it's not an abstract thing where this is supposed to be part of our faith journey. For me, it wasn't Mary Magdalene. I I don't know why. I mean, that she's just never been one that has excited my imagination quite the same way as she has excited yours or excited Jennifer's. But I really like the story of Joseph in Egypt. I find his life and the fact that he was he was given incredible promises for his life, and he set out to try and do everything the Lord asked him to do, and then he faced setback after setback after setback. And I wonder, as he was sitting in, in an Egyptian prison with a life sentence, you know, how he must have felt, similarly to how Mary Magdalene must have felt at the foot of the cross, where you've given your whole life to something, and yet it seems impossible. And then as you see the miracles unfold in his life that allow him to fulfill that mission, I just find that really inspiring. Maybe perhaps going back to my own personal experiences of waiting and feeling like, Lord, I've tried to do the things I thought you wanted me to do, and I'm not seeing the results of my efforts. So I I find that interesting. But I do find it interesting that she would pray to have the heart of Mary Magdalene. And then the Lord would bless her with such an incredible opportunity to be where she was, to walk where she walked, to touch the places that she touched. What an incredible blessing, and what an amazing person to put there, because she was well prepared to be a great ambassador for all of the things that happened there in a way that perhaps someone else may not have been as prepared to do. What a blessing to her, but what a blessing to the rest of us as well. Well, it's definitely a blessing to me because I, in the years that I've grown attracted to Mary Magdalene, I've read a lot. So I have read the books that describe all of the various perspectives of looking at her. And I've always been unhappy with one or another, well, okay, that's a bit strident for me, or uh, I think that kind of underplays. And I think she's just hit the essence, which is, you know, those are all wonderful academic things. But the essence of that really speaks to us is she was broken. She had an opportunity to encounter the Lord, and that changed her life. And if you have a particular aspect of her life that strikes you as better than others, well, fine, that's okay. But it doesn't mean that's the way it was. And But what what we know, what we know with certainty in which she's developed really well, I think, or what are the critical things? She was broken. The Lord healed her. She followed him. Good message for all of us. That is a good message for <laughs> all of us. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Sam, Julie, Rod, and Donna, and especially to Jennifer Ristine for generously sharing her stories and her faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. 
I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in good faith.